0: Patrick, can you mute yourself again? are not talking.
1: All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's coffee chat. Again, sorry for the delay. It's we, we've had more issues than normal today. Normally, we use Jitsi in order to directly live stream. Instead, today we are simply talking on Jitsi, screen capturing the discussion, and then live streaming that. So it, it's a much more involved process here. Um, and uh, so we, we, oh, we still appreciate you all joining us and working with us as we continue with this. Um, and uh, I'm still trying to make sure it's working. Hopefully, it uh, looks like it's sort of working. Okay, so um, just quick introductions. Uh, and again, I apologize. If there are issues with volume, let me know so I can try and bump and adjust it slightly. Um, but we'll probably have a few issues throughout today, unfortunately. Um, so, quick introductions. So, my name is Justin. Um, I'm not pictured because to save CPU, my my uh, webcam's off. But um, I'm the organizer of the Monero Community Workgroup, and we help put these on um, every so often, uh, well, about once a month. Um, Arctic Mine, would you mind introducing yourself, please?
2: Yeah, my name is Francisco. And uh, I'm mean, um, a. Sorry, am I getting an echo here? Yeah. Yes. something's delaying it. Well,
3: that's better.
2: Okay. Might have been me. Is this better? Yes. Okay, I see what the problem is now. Okay, good. Uh, my name is Francisco, and I, of course, uh, I'm involved in uh, in the Monero project and on the core team. Uh, I guess most people know me around from posting, so we can go from there.
1: Okay, thanks, Arctic Mine. Um, all right, next, can uh, Howard? Can you please introduce yourself?
3: Hey, uh, I'm H Y C, I've been well. Originally, I was working just on the blockchain database in Monero, but uh, lately, I've just been working randomly all over the code, and uh, most recently, looking at uh, the proof of work algorithms.
1: Awesome, thanks Howard. I know we had a few questions come in before and I think it would be really helpful if we were able to cover some of those uh, today. So thanks for thanks for seeing you on again today. Um, Diego, can you introduce yourself please? Hi guys, my name is Diego, a man
0: that needs no introduction because I just introduced myself. So uh, I do like um move this place. I do website stuff, I do I'm working on the foreign funding system, I try to high hi um, while we're all very sad. And um, and I run cyphermarket.com where you can purchase shirts. Yay! That's me.
1: Excellent. Um, is, is Serang still here? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. He got fed up. Serang, Serang left. Okay. Uh, so. Um, who else is in the chat? We have two people that are labeled as fellow Jitsers. Uh, I think one of them is HYC. Um, if you're the other um, person, please speak up. Oh, this is Doug. Okay.
4: Uh, Ch- can you guys hear me? Uh, Doug man, the host of the Monero Talk Show. Um, yeah, I see a lot of uh, smart, uh, intelligent speakers on today, so I will uh, try to refrain from speaking as much as possible. But uh, thanks for having
1: me on. No, we're happy to have you on, Doug. Um, I actually want to start with you first. So you recently, I believe it was yesterday, had an interview with Andrew Polstra, who uh, works for Blockstream and has contributed a lot to the Mimblewimble protocol. Can you sort of summarize that interview for us here? What were some of the key takeaways that you felt you got out of that interview? And overall, how was it having Andrew run your show
4: uh, yeah I don't know if you guys got to tune in but we actually ended up not speaking about mimblewimble at all um, which is okay um, my uh, my key takeaway was well I mean what I the, the biggest uh, question I left with or the question that was posed was basically this um, this meme that's been going around uh, of whether or not uh, you know you could have a coin that's 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 perfectly fungible and private, while also uh, knowing and relying upon the fact that there's no secret inflation that that could potentially happen in the background. Um, so I, I was surprised to hear that from Andrew. I've heard that from others in the Bitcoin community, uh, but Andrew went so far to say that he, um, you know, really. Really sees that as, I guess, uh, a risk in Monero, uh, and even saying that he, you know, the fear being that, you know, uh, quantum computing uh, may may be. I don't, I don't know. He he didn't go into the details of, of 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 when he sees it becoming an issue, but he actually does see it as a potential issue that something like quantum computing can break uh, the discrete log rhythm. That uh, you know, Monero relies upon, and Bitcoin relies upon, but in Monero, it being a much larger issue, in that uh, it could potentially be secretly inflated. Uh, so this all ties to, I guess, why the reasoning as to why uh, Bitcoin has hesitated uh, to, you know, upgrade and become become more fungible and private using things like confidential transactions. Uh, because of this uh, this reasoning that um, they they wanna wait for something where they can rely on the fact that uh, the secret inflation can happen. So I would love to hear everybody, I know I think uh, I've spoken to Howard about this a little bit when he came on the show. Um, I have my own personal opinion on it in that um, I, th- I, I think, I uh, think, privacy and fungibility is so vital to what cryptocurrency is supposed to be that it should be, you know, coin, we should be looking to be on the bleeding edge of whatever it needs to be to have it, because without it, um, the value proposition of cryptocurrency itself uh, really starts to fall apart in my eyes. Um, but I would love to hear everybody else's input on it. And that was really kind of my my, my main takeaway from Andrew's uh, talk yesterday.
1: Yeah, excellent. We um, we definitely appreciate you having those um, those conversations. They're generally very helpful for, I think, the Monero community to hear some of these perspectives that you take the time for people to discuss within the Monero community when you have people like Sarang on to discuss some of the research, recent research developments, but also good to speak with people who have Who are usually outside of the Monero ecosystem and might interact in some way, like Andrew Polstra. Um, I think actually the first time I learned about Monero um, when I was researching these things, I I believe was a direct result of uh, a Stack Exchange post from Andrew Polstra who was talking about ring signatures. So I think. I mostly have him to thank, at least initially, from learning about Monero in the first place, Mm -hmm. Um, sort of in a long time ago sort of situation. Um, But I definitely think that'd be good to open up to discussion sort of the trade-off that Monero generally makes that we sacrifice soundness, uh, we sacrifice the ability for people to immediately see the amount of outstanding Monero in circulation um, and we, we put the trust in the mathematical implementation of confidential transactions in order to have a lot of the privacy benefits that we have today. Do we think um, what so what is sort of the reason that we do that trade off with with Monero? And um, do we ever see Bitcoin making a sort of similar trade off ever going forward? Um, Arctic Mind, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs>
2: Yes, I mean my my thought here is that one of the major trade-offs, which really wasn't covered, is contact. Um,
0: you're pretty quiet, man. Like is he quiet for everyone else?
2: Sorry?
0: You're, you're you're pretty quiet to me.
2: Okay, I did turn it down quite a bit. Is this better?
0: I mean, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> a little bit better.
2: Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll uh, I'll raise the sound a bit. Is that better?
1: That's a lot yeah, better. Perfect.
2: Okay, good. Okay, well, my thought is that yes, there is a technical trade-off in soundness, but I think more directly, there's also a transaction size trade-off with privacy um, and confidentiality in, in Bitcoin that it, Monero doesn't have because of the adaptive block size limit. But if you were to take and say, make the transaction size of a Bitcoin transaction four times bigger and leave the block size the same, then that's a four times fewer transactions on the chain. And they're already overloaded. So I think that's going to be the sort of immediate uh, limitation um as opposed to, even if we have a more sound technical solution um, that's that people can trust that what we have right now, uh Bitcoin is still going to be limited.
0: And, and I think that's one of the key takeaways here is my that problem. everything is uh everything is very intertwined and and you might say well we're discussing this and not this or this and not this but the the issue is like all these things have to work together all these things have to fit together like a puzzle um and so you know talking about it's it's difficult to separate the the privacy and inflation problem from the scaling problem in fact I, i would say it's impossible to separate those two um because if you implement like it's like Arctic Mindset is just completely off the table at the moment for Bitcoin even to attempt to do something like that because of how overloaded they are um, even if they wanted to. So uh, all like blockchain is just so um, <clears throat> interdependent on a whole bunch of different stuff working masterfully and perfectly together. And <laughs> if it doesn't, like everything just falls apart. And this is this is what makes it so difficult to get right. And this is what makes like all the projects that go around like, oh, well, we, we figured this out, and they just kind of throw a few ideas together. It's like, it doesn't work that way. Like All this stuff has to work together extremely well. Otherwise, it, it just all falls apart on itself.
1: So, I know that um, so scalability um, is generally an issue with privacy that we brought up. And um, at the moment, we have the sort of Difficulty in getting soundness with privacy too, um, in relation to Bitcoin, which one do you think is a bigger problem? Suppose that we were able to magically snap our fingers and make a privacy solution that was either you know more efficient than the Bitcoin solution, or as sound, or somehow more sound than what Bitcoin is, uh, but still have privacy. Um, if we were able to have either extreme, which one do you think would be more likely to be adopted? In Bitcoin and this can be open and this can be open to anyone uh, Arctic mine if you want to take it again
2: um, I mean I guess if we made the transact the private transaction smaller than the in the clear transaction is essentially what you're saying then, of course, where that, the limitation of scalability is in there. I, I, I really have questioned how feasible that is. I mean, maybe there is a technology that does that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in case that will be the case. Uh, otherwise, I still think that scalability really right now. I don't think Bitcoin could accept anything, makes it even that's larger transaction-wise. But, but I mean, yeah, I mean, that's about the scenario. You have to make the transactions smaller.
1: Okay. Thanks, Arctic Mine. Um So I think now uh, we're going to move on to. Well, can I can I speak real quick on something? Yeah, jump. Go ahead. Diego. Quite Bitcoin related that
0: I think isn't is talked about enough, and I think is is actually quite scary. I am against, and this is, is going to be a very shocking statement, maybe to some people watching. I am very against Bitcoin being mass adopted, and I I think it in its current state it allows for an unprecedented level of. Um, surveillance on people's finances, and, uh, and always the people who suffer the worst are the people that are disenfranchised, the people on the fringes uh, of, of this type of thing. It just it it really just opens up, so to speak, all the bank accounts to all to any government that wants to look at it. And you don't even have to be in the same country uh, as long as you have access to certain amounts of metadata. And we just don't know who's collecting what at what time. We just have to assume that they're pretty much collecting everything all the time. Um, I I would fight tooth and nail for Bitcoin or any of its derivatives to be adopted uh, on a massive scale. It's just, it allows too much power to the people who have the disproportionate ability to surveil a network, the the whole internet network. Um, I think it's a very dangerous tool. I think it's very um, stupid. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough, just the level of power that Bitcoin gives uh, people that are already in power. And something like Monero is, or, I mean, heck, God forbid, you know, <laughs> sorry uh, to offend anybody here, but like if Zcash ever figures out their trusted setup thing and like, you know, starts to uh, go private by default, anything like that is, is a thousand times more preferable. Anything with any privacy aspects is a thousand times more preferable than Bitcoin in its current state. Bitcoin is dangerous in its current state and it should not be met adopted. It will be used for evil things, not, not just in like, and I don't mean uh, in terms of you know, purchasing illicit stuff. I'm talking about in terms of oppression by the powers that be. It will be used for these things, and we are very naive and stupid to think otherwise.
2: Can okay, we just briefly comment on that. The threat is Dogecoin, not Bitcoin. <laughs> the reason is uh, Dogecoin has a tail emission, and you could put Monero's scaling technology on it. In In Bitcoin, you can't really do it
4: got it all right so <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I just real quick i, I mean I, I diego i agree with you and i think the the scariest part is that um it's marketed as the opposite i mean uh you know it's it's it comes from this this cyberpunk crypto anarchist movement and it's kind of got this um the way it's marketed is that it's, you know, it is kind of the, the great equalizer and it's going to, um, you know, bring liberty and freedom to all when, um, it's kind of, it's the opposite is possible here as, as people are opting into this thing, not realizing, um, that it, it, it may create the opposite scenario in the future, uh, more of a dystopia than a utopia. And, um, it is a little bit scary and i think that's why you know it's you know it's important for monero to to charge ahead and to also try to you know get the information out there i don't think you know only now are people starting to realize first of all how transparent bitcoin actually is and i don't think anybody really realizes what that means what the implications are
0: Yeah, yeah, I realize, I very much realize that my view is fairly extreme.
4: So oh. <laughs> what's that?
0: I, I, I said I very much realize that my view is, is fairly extreme just for anyone watching is fairly shocked. Mm-hmm. I, I've mentioned this before to quite some to quite some pushback.
1: Yeah, in my opinion, I, I think we we're so used to a fungible system without realizing what it is. Um, and people are used to it's an assumption people make in their everyday transactions that they do not need to worry about class B coins, class C coins being worth less. And if Bitcoin's widely adopted, these are going to be essentially new problems we're going to have to face again. Um, and people aren't going to think about them until it sort of becomes a huge catastrophe. <laughs> um, or everyone will just use a, a point of sale service that audits the incoming funds and make sure they're class A coins or something. I don't know, we'll go right back to the same sort of payment processor system we have today, um, in my opinion. But instead of actually settling the transaction, they'll audit for you to make sure the funds are not tainted or have some lower value.
0: <laughs>
1: but uh, it, it,
0: there's, I mean, if, if there's a little bit of time, there's, there's another thing that has recently come up in the past couple of weeks, so I um, that I would like to discuss specifically regarding fungibility. potential okay. and if, if we didn't have anything else to do. Someone else you wanted to
1: do Justin. Um just no? just putting some things in the agenda, we have two things we really still need to cover. We had a question come in about lightning Network, so we can get to that when we have time. Um, and then I wanted to speak with Howard about random X and random js because that's pretty interesting. Okay. Um, so you, you can go ahead with your fungibility question, and then we can move on. Um, OK, great, great.
0: So I was having a discussion on Reddit, um, which is an awful place. Uh, I was having a discussion on Reddit with somebody regarding fungibility, and he very much disagreed. And, and after looking in uh, in depth into what he said, I can only see that he is correct. And so I'm going I'm to talk about this with the Monero community. We we often use interchangeably the words interchangeable and indistinguishable. Meaning, when we define fungibility, we say fungibility is making two um, is making sure that two pieces of the same unit of currency are indistinguishable from another. And sometimes we say interchangeable. Fungibility's technical definition from an economic viewpoint, and I read several 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 um, economic papers. Uh, Written by different universities and stuff, and they all—most of them actually don't, don't define it. Most of them define it as money has no labels. This idea that money has no labels, and I can expand on that just a second. But the, the, it's not indistinguishable; it is interchangeable, and there is a subtle difference there. Um, in that, if something is—and uh, <sighs> I guess the, the best way to explain it was the example that I read there—is. Um, Like if somebody gets $50 like from a lottery ticket versus gets $5,000 windfall somehow, um, obviously those dollars are all dollars and they don't have labels like this is short term money or this is long term money. But people, you know, the, the $50 will kind of mentally put it in short-term money they're more likely to spend it right away whereas if they get five thousand dollars that is kind of wealth in their mind and so they're more likely to save it or put it towards something that increases their wealth like maybe a house payment or something like that but the money itself doesn't have any labels the money itself is fairly interchangeable and so from the strictest technical definition bitcoin would be fungible because bitcoin does not have any labels it's just um, intrinsically and technically it has no labels on its own it's just that humans put labels on it like dirty tainted that type of thing that said a lot of the papers that i have looked at um did make a distinction without calling it out necessarily by name about practical functional fungibility as in what humans consider fungible and what is actually strictly technically fungible um and it was a very subtle concept to grasp. It was a little bit difficult at first, but I mean, after a few examples, I, I was able to wrap my, my mind around it. But the, 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 there's a very interesting distinction there, because um, when we go around and saying like fungibility is the, kind of the indistinguishability of two different things, that's not necessarily correct. And I, I, I'm actually planning, I'm, I'm, I'm setting up a meeting with a uh, local economy professor at the university that's close to my place, just to kind of discuss this with him get a little bit of a better idea from an economist's viewpoint. And I, and I, I don't know, I to me, like, I, I like to be right, and I like to be correct in the things that I'm saying, so I'm still kind of working through this in terms of um, kind of coming to an understanding about functional fungibility, because we all know, especially um, coders and, and, and developers like HYC, um, code is only as good as um, the humans that are using it, and, like, it has to be human usable. It's made for humans to do stuff. If humans can't do stuff with it, like, um, or for the benefit of humanity, like, what, what's the point of it? But That's the whole reason we're in Monero, because we want to benefit humanity in terms of we think privacy should be a thing. So I don't know, I guess I'm just kind of throwing that out there, maybe not necessarily for discussion, but just kind of for pondering. Because um, when I did start looking through a lot of the Monero resources, there was that word indistinguishable, indistinguishable showing up a lot. And it, it's not necessarily correct, and so I'm, I'm delving a little further into this, and I'm open to be wrong, being wrong in this in this area. Um, which I want to brag on the Monero community about. That, that's one thing that kept me around here is People were open to being kind of incorrect and being updated on their stuff. So anyway, so I just want to throw in this kind of an inside. Um, anyway, yeah, I still hold that Bitcoin is not functionally or humanly fungible, but it is technically fungible, which is the worst kind of correct. In yeah, I mean, the I, kind of.
1: I, I think it sort of comes back to what, what you say, how it, it matters how humans interact with it. So if people never looked at the history of bitcoin transactions for any reason suppose no one knew how let's say suppose we had this magical bitcoin pool that no one bothered checking or verifying or anything else it just worked if that was the case then bitcoin would be functionally fungible but i think that once you start adding some real life assumptions such as people can do that regulatory pressures encourage people to do that then we can start to say that okay distinguishability starts to become a factor in determining whether or not they can be exchanged one to one or another right. set of circumstances so right. i think so it really depends on of, i think it depends on what set process. of assumptions you you introduce and start with because once you start adding real life assumptions i think we can start breaking down the sort of what fungibility means in practice. Um, like if, yeah, yeah, what fungibility means in practice. Like if you, with Bitcoin, make the assumption that before everyone sends and receives funds, that they go through, let's say, a really methodical, well-thought-out mixing process before and after receiving funds, you could maybe argue that Bitcoin's pretty fungible, too. So, like, it, it depends on how you, you sort of define the level of fungibility. Um, I personally feel that um, you sort of need to look at what the general actual use of the cryptocurrency is, what the state of the sort of regulatory environment is and how people interact with it. And I think that ultimately when you do that, I think a marketing is, is really about in the right place right now where, I mean, you're right, Monero is not perfectly fungible either. If you go to the other extreme, it's fungible by plausible deniability, right? Not perfect untraceability. So it's close, but not perfect, and likewise, Bitcoin isn't is fungible if you take if you make all these assumptions that people don't do, but they they really do these in real life. So um, I, I think it's sort of it might be a more loose thing than we normally let on, um, but I think that in general, you just look to see what is the general ability of untru- uh, of changeability based on how people usually use it, I think is the best way to, to really look at fungibility generally. Right. I, I, I think you're
3: kind of nitpicking and, you know, Justin got to most of the point. The, 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 the thing is when you have physical tokens and you can make them fungible, right, uh, they really are indistinguishable you know like a physical coin doesn't have a serial number on it okay uh, printed notes that do have serial numbers actually are distinguishable and the only reason they are fungible is by law right that's that's the whole principle behind fiat uh, so when we're talking about digital tokens you know these things all have signatures on them. so of course they are all identifiable they're all uniquely identifiable, right? So it's it's vital that um, their identifying features are practically meaningless. It's vital to make them indistinguishable, because we don't have a law that that says that forces you to accept them. So yeah, indistinguishability is a fundamental requirement.
0: Correct. Yes, and I I completely agree. And I would say that an otherwise technically fungible asset, when treated as non-fungible, as Bitcoin is, becomes, for all practical purposes, not fungible. Um, it, which, but rather, and I understand that that doesn't make a good marketing tagline. So rather than explain all of that to a person, it's easier just to say, and actually technically correct, well, not technically correct, but practically correct, that Bitcoin is not fungible. And I completely agree that origin and distinguishability played the most massive role in humans treating something as fungible or non fungible And that's actually mentioned in several of the economic papers that I've read as well. So anyway, uh, yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, Diego, I, I look forward to hearing what you speak with your professor, um, that you're speaking with at your local university and we can resume these talks. I think it would be cool if you have a, a post written up about it. And I think that'd be cool to speak um, later to the Monero outreach team to see sort of what their recommendations are. Um Howard, uh, I think now is a good time to move on to sort of the state of random Js and random X. We had a few questions come in. I I admittedly have not been following either extremely closely, mostly because I don't have the required skill set to contribute. Um, however, um, I, I know that initially you started working on random Js <laughs> and now you are, working a little more closely with random x although you still have reservations so can you speak a little bit about the ideas behind random js and random x what the differences are and what sort of the pros and cons that you're looking at at the moment are
3: sure i mean you know they both start from the basic same basic idea which is we want to use randomly generated code for our proof of work algorithm so that uh, anyone who wants to develop special purpose hardware for proof of work will be forced to implement a full blown cpu right uh, as opposed to the you know very simple circuits that they that they do for like sha256 or whatever else you want to talk about mm-hmm. so that's that's the main goal right we want uh, randomly generated code and we want to force you to uh, execute that code on a cpu and that's our way of leveling the playing field between the ASIC guys and you know desktop computers, GPU users, whatever. You know everybody is going to be running a proof of work algorithm that requires an instruction set processor of some kind. Right? That that's the basic goal. Uh, so with Random JS, the idea was you know we would generate random JavaScript source code and. Uh, have that be executed as the proof of work, and there's there's a couple of problems with that approach, which is why we've abandoned it. Uh, first of all, you know, JavaScript itself is a fairly complex language. That's actually one of the reasons I chose it in the first place. But uh, that works against us because uh, it makes it very difficult to validate or audit an implementation and and say, yay, verily, this this implementation is sound and correct and behaves as expected. Uh, the complexity is just too great. So we can't actually you know, successfully audit that. Right? So that's one problem. And you know that problem is enough to disqualify it. Uh, the other problem is uh, you can't actually uh, force a hardware implementer to execute the JavaScript code after you generate it. You know, um, there's, there's all kinds of shortcuts you could take. And obviously, you know, in a performance-sensitive application like this, any shortcut that exists will get taken, right? So uh, after you've generated the source code, uh, your internal representation of that source code is actually a more efficient representation than, than the JavaScript code itself and so a hardware implementer could just take that internal representation and execute it much more efficiently than if they went all the way through a javascript interpreter and there's no way to prevent that from happening so that's that's a massive weakness in the in the approach uh, and so yeah those those are the main two reasons why we said hey you know this random js isn't going to work so the idea now with Random X is basically we get rid of the programming language completely, right? So there is no actual uh, representation of the program or any control flow. Basically, Random X says any 16-bit pattern is a valid computer instruction. And so we just generate uh, eight kilobytes of random data and uh, start treating it as instruction code. Uh, so RandomX defines its own virtual machine, basically. It defines a type of a CPU, a virtual CPU, that uh, knows how to you know, take in 16 bits at a time and treat them as instruction words and, and goes, goes to town on that. That's the basic idea.
1: Excellent. That gives a lot of good perspective. Um, I was curious where the name, or where, where the letter X came from. So X is basically the absence of a, a programming language. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 So what? What are? Your, I. You said that you had some general reservations about moving to Random X. You think it generally is a more proper way forward than random JS for the reasons you mentioned, what are some of the big reservations and and challenges that you still need to overcome with random X? Uh,
3: personally, I think that random X virtual machine is, uh, simple enough that it could be implemented, uh, Very easily, like you know, you you could take a very small CPU core, like the size of a very small ARM processor, and put a thousand of these onto a mining chip. Just just tossing out fake numbers there, but so so that's my one reservation about it is that the specification is still very simple and probably very easy to implement in hardware. Um, That's and that's something that you know we really aren't gonna know for sure until we're further along in the development of the software and we see how heavily we can optimize the software
1: excellent so how long has um have the contributors been working on random X uh,
3: you know Tevedor started that project, and it's been going for a couple of months. Uh, and you know, we've been reviewing it on IRC and on GitHub, and um, you know, Tevedor has been collecting benchmark results. So you know, we've been. Testing across a variety of different CPUs, you know, Intel, AMD, and ARM, uh, to get an idea of how fast typical
0: arithmetic instruction execute. And... Oh, how the hell has broken loose!
4: So.
3: <laughs> Massive feedback. All right, so you know we've we've basically been using that to tune the instruction mix. All right, you know basically. You know, you, you're taking a random bit pattern in and saying, this is valid instruction. Uh, we're allocating the range of bits differently to the different instruction types. So this basically uh, gives a weighting factor to how frequently a particular type of instruction will ap- will appear and how frequently it will be executed. The main reason that we needed to look at this is, um we're using both integer and floating point instructions and typically floating point is much slower than integer uh you know we're we're doing arithmetic logical operators boolean operators whatever uh you know add subtract is easy you can do that in a single cycle multiply is a little bit harder you could do that in maybe three cycles whatever uh Integer divide is even harder and typically runs in a variable length of time depending on what the two operands are. So, you know, we needed to collect these kinds of performance statistics to, to give us an idea of um, what proportion of instructions should be a particular type of operation, mm-hmm. because we want the total execution time to be, uh, you know, nearly constant.
1: Excellent. Thanks, uh, thanks, Howard. So, if someone wants to follow this project more closely going forward, how would you recommend someone do that?
3: Well, they you know they should definitely look at uh, Tevador's repo on GitHub. Uh, you know, it's Tevador slash RandomX. And uh, if they want to, you know, join in on the real time discussions, you know, join us on the Monero-Pow channel on IRC.
0: Monero-pal, P-A-L?
3: P-O-W, yeah.
0: Oh, P-O-W, okay. We should have Monero-pal for finding pals in Monero,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, whenever you need a, a friend in the Monero community. Well, you can always go to Monero-community if you need a friend in the Monero community. But, um... <laughs> Those
0: jokers don't do anything.
1: Excellent. Uh, So did we have, uh, I see we have a few more names in chat. Does anyone else want to introduce themselves before we uh, move on to the last few questions here?
5: Hey, this is Miss from Nonsense Research Lab and I lurk around MRL a lot of the time. Um, Do a lot of stuff with Insight, decentralized consensus lab as well. Uh, Super excited to be dropping in here late. Sorry about the delay schedule, didn't permit catching the whole meeting.
1: Yeah, great to see a, a face of the name, miss, miss. It's it's nice to have you on. Uh, I'm glad you can make this one. Um, make sure to, to join in if you have any uh, sort of conversation you want to add during the last uh, coffee chat here, during the coffee chat here. So um, the one question we had it, come in today from a viewer um, said, is Lightning Network a good or bad solution to Monero scaling? Maybe on-chain transactions um, aren't not needed for buying groceries, et cetera. So this is sort of the same sort of question that we often get around Lightning Network um, and sort of what general trade-offs there are and if, if Monero was open to pursuing the Lightning, uh, Lightning Network implementation. Um, so Arctic Mine, um, do you have a further explanation on what sort of thought processes have been going around regarding Lightning Network and Monero and of, sort of the talks that we've had there?
2: Well, the first thing i'd like to say is that lightning network itself is definitely you can definitely do it on monero and, and it has very valid uses i i've always been a skeptic of lightning network as a scaling tool as opposed to like like let me give you a scenario of something where i think lightning network will be quite useful let's say you're making a series of payments to somebody let's say a utility company or uh or or a bpn or whatever you're paying them once a month and you want to have, you could use Lightning Network to do that. Even in a more extreme example, uh, you would open the channel and then you, you could transfer the, the money at the appropriate uh, points in time. Uh, that's very useful in that situation. In a situation, let's say you you are uh, a regular customer of a coffee shop, uh, called a the Starbucks card model. You instead of depositing money with them in a sort of a trusted central ledger, you could put the money in a in a uh, you can use something like Lightning Network to do that and and then you would, every cup of coffee you just basically transfer it and then you close off the channel at the end. So those kind of applications, I think it has a lot of sense and makes sense for Monero. In some cases it might even help with privacy in Monero because if you have multiple separate transactions between two parties that's attackable, well that's potentially attackable. What I don't see Lightning Network doing is replacing on-chain scaling, which has had to be marketed in Bitcoin. And I think that's really a lot of the problems with that. I don't see that as a viable, really long-term solution as a replacement, but I think it has its places in in Monero. Uh, And it really comes down to the step-by-step implementation of the infrastructure on the main chain to support something like that that's been happening. So, yeah, that's how I see the whole thing. I mean, I, I used to, I've never seen it as a solution. I think it's going to be a bit of a reckoning in Bitcoin where people are going to realize the Lightning Network doesn't really solve the problems they think it solves. Especially the biggest problem that I had, uh, that I have a Lightning Network in Bitcoin is if you have it too many channels, how do you close them? I mean, if, if your if uh, uh, main chain is overloaded, they can't close the channels, how's that going to, what impact is that gonna have on lightning network? Is it gonna destabilize the whole thing? Those are real serious problems uh, when it comes to scaling a lightning network. Uh, those really people are asking those questions. Anyway, that's kind of my thoughts on that.
1: Okay, does anyone else have thoughts on uh, lightning network? And Monero? <laughs> quietness there so someone I
4: just yeah justin it's uh doug from yeah. uh monero talk um a question i have posed to you guys before some of you guys uh just the idea that maybe even lightning is a better fit for monero versus bitcoin uh giving the architecture of monero um uh, the fact that we have the tail emission uh because the idea if lightning is running on On Bitcoin and and most of the transactions now move to the second layer. Uh, What is then the incentive for miners to mine? Whereas on Monero, uh, that incentive to mine obviously always exists with the tail emission. So I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that.
1: Um, So I mean, I I know I I believe I mentioned this when uh, you interviewed me, and I think I talked about um, Arctic manipulation too. In my opinion, Monero bodes itself better to second-layer solutions than other cryptocurrency projects precisely because on the main layer, there's very limited information that's leaked. So if you're interacting between Monero and some other second-layer solution, let's take a private solution for example. Suppose you had a ZK Snark sidechain on top of Monero, which is like one of the long-term really cool possible goals we could eventually have in that case then it would be I mean, monero is perfect for that compared to bitcoin because when you're transacting between monero and the sidechain, you're not leaking the amount when you're going back and forth you're not leaking what address it comes from when you go back and forth you could use the same wallet when going back and forth you don't have to go through a long process of of complicated ways in order to generate new accounts and making sure they never touch each other and other sort of circumstances and even if you're making a system that isn't privacy focused you can build it with the knowledge that information isn't leaked on the monero chain at least to a significant extent especially compared to transparent solutions in regards to i think your more specific argument with or your more specific question which is for uh people's general concern that uh with bitcoin if you have most people use lightning network um that there won't be enough on-chain transaction volume to sustain a a strong secure mining network i think that would be a, a better question for um for arctic mine to answer because he uh has a more um in-depth view on Monero's tail emission and other situations like that. Could you speak up uh, about that, arctic Mike?
2: Yes, I take that question, and, and, I, and I think it's important to, to look at it. I mean, there's two potential problems, and, and uh, my thought about it is that, and, and it was asked to me, I think, in one of the talks, I'm going to give it a bit, of, uh, um, uh, a, a bit more thought about that question. And to me, the, the issue in, in Bitcoin, it's not going to be that it's not going to be mining incentives because everybody's moved on to lightning network you still have to close the channels the problem is you won't be able to close the channels. so my my concern there is that in monero of course you can scale and close the channels and and the lightning network is stable in a, in a situation like bitcoin there's a real danger not that you don't incentivize the miners because you've got this one megabyte block and it's still going to be filled instead of with individual transactions maybe not um with uh, people closing channels on Lightning Network, basically. Uh, that's kind of what I could see happening there. Uh, the real danger is going to be that the, the channels won't close. Now, the question, on the other hand, is very relevant. If you're looking at, say, Bitcoin Cash or uh, the new Bitcoin Satoshi mission, they're really vulnerable to that type of failure uh, in the sense that they're, they're making the block the block sizes very, very big, and they keep making them bigger and bigger. In that situation, you will be definitely... Uh, Vulnerable to that failure. Although in principle, you can also be vulnerable to that failure without Lightning Network. Uh, simply, there isn't the incentives for the miners to to raise the fees. So, so that's that's where I see the biggest problem. So, I, I think it is. I do agree that Monero is way more suitable for Lightning Network than um, Bitcoin is. But I would argue that I think with Lightning Network, the bigger problem in Bitcoin is going to be not being able to close channels, as opposed to not having enough. Of, minor incentive for the miners because you still have that one megabyte limit and well it's now slightly bigger because of SegWit you still have that limit on the block size and that's basically where, where it could destabilize the Lightning Network in my opinion so
1: thank you okay this so that I answered your question
4: yeah yeah I had asked Arctic that as well on the show I'm sorry to repeat the question but I'm, I'm glad he gave it more thought and uh Maybe we have some additional viewers here, so it's it's nice that uh, people are are learning this information.
1: Excellent. Um, so we're we're nearing the last few minutes of the uh, of the chat here. So um, if anyone here has any questions for anyone in, available in chat, make sure you speak up now. We're all open to ask questions. That's kind of why we're here. Uh, answer questions. That's kind of why we're here. And um, if you are watching this on YouTube, make sure you leave a chat and with, with some questions so hopefully we are able to get to those two in the last few minutes here. Um, does anyone, I know Ismus, you just showed up. Do you have a question for anyone here? Um, I'll hold
5: my questions for now.
1: <laughs> All right, great. Um, let's see so uh, wait
5: i do um the so monero uses lock lock time i think by default was that selected empirically or arbitrarily because one of the things i'm probably going to do soon is uh look at the historical reorganization depths and just plot a histogram and see like what is our like median or mean reorg depth and then like does what the distribution that we see actually suggest that 20 is like the safest number or should we adjust that? But I'm just wondering where the 20 came from in the first place. Uh,
1: that's an excellent question. I do not personally know the answer to. Um, Howard or uh, Arctic Mind, do you know the uh, answer to this or does this need to be a question for Manila Research Lab?
0: <laughs> we should ask thankful for today. Oh, no, 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 he was doing one block, one block time, (laughs) 31.
3: Sorry, what was the question again?
5: Whether uh, the 20 block lock time that Monero uses uh, was a data-driven choice or just kind of like arbitrarily selected. Um, And the question I'm asking is, I'm gonna go look at the data anyways. Uh, so I'll post a, I'll post the results to this in Monero Research Lab when I have a chance in the next week or two. Um, I just haven't plotted I haven't had a chance to do the data dump and plot yet. it's it's ten it's ten block unlock time, is it not? Sorry, twenty minutes, ten blocks. My bad. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that limit's been there for a long time. I think uh, if you were to ask Smooth, uh, he'd probably give you an
2: explanation. Cool. Thanks. Yes, I would concur with that. Um, what the historical reason for that is, um, because that was, it's been very, uh, very well, it could have been just chosen, uh, you know, it's sort of a, in a semi arbitrary way. A lot of these parameters, you know, if they work, they don't get changed um but it's definitely worth looking at i think from a research perspective to identify what is the optimal number that should be used in this perspective like basically getting empirical data for reorganizations and and so on and so forth and and seeing what the probabilities are and then going from there it's definitely worth looking at
1: yeah good question i wish um unfortunately uh Serang and uh, Suray were not able to make it today. Um, they're off and on, though, but I'm sure you can speak with them some other time, and I'm sure you already frequently speak with them for a variety <laughs> of other things you're working on. <laughs> Pretty much do. <anyway. laughs> All right. Um, so any we don't seem to have any last-minute questions coming in through uh, YouTube here. So um, any last questions here, or should we wrap it up? last chance uh,
4: yeah if you don't mind I just want to shill uh, Monero Talk for one second just because we we, uh, we recently just launched our website it's Live. so if anybody wants to go check that out that's watching uh, it's a way to find all our shows and we also put them in podcast form so now people can listen to them and thanks again for having me
5: on oh gosh That reminds me, I should put in a plug that uh, very soon Mastering Monero will be available as a free book for covering everything from, like, why do you want to use Monero, how to use Monero, to all the technical stuff. Um, Sarah Hack is the author. We're in the final stages of editing that um, under my uh, Uncaged Potential handle. And, uh, yeah, be excited. That should be coming out very soon. We'll have free copies and hard copies available. Uh, Justin has been, like, amazingly helpful with this whole process and uh, I'm really excited that share that with the community. Uh, are
0: we plugging stuff now? Is that what we're doing? I I have a thousand of stuff. we plugging
5: free stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I know Master and Monero is right about, oh, so close. Um, so hopefully people can still get it around Christmas time. <laughs> uh, that was the original hope with the large push here. All right, um, so Uh, Without further ado, again, um, thank you, everyone, for coming to join us. I know today was far less than ideal for the sort of circumstances to get Jitsi hosted and everything. Um, Hopefully, we will not have these issues in the future. This is actually the first time we've had issues in quite a long time. So, um, again, hopefully we can mitigate them going forward. Um, But we, we made it through it, and... I hope that all the viewers really got a lot out of this. I know it was really interesting to learn about RandomX. I know it was uh, great to listen to Andrew, uh, the uh, Monero Talk interview with Andrew Polstra, so make sure you go uh, see that if you haven't already. Uh, oh, one last tiny plug I want to make. So Sarang and I, um, and, and possibly Surrey if he's available, are starting a series called Breaking Monero. We will be going through all of the... Uh, or not all of, many of the privacy and security uh, implications of Monero and doing about 15-ish minute videos breaking down how it affects people. And those will be available on YouTube. We're recording our first video, which is an introduction to everything next week. So expect a, or not, sorry, this week, it's already already Saturday. So this coming up week. Uh, So expect a Reddit post about that. All right. Um, now, uh, again, thank you everyone for being on and, uh, have a great rest of your Saturday, everybody. Take care.